Welcome this evening. Um, we're going to be doing two things tonight. This is a two-course meal, not a three-course. Um, the first is we're going to look at um, this passage of Martha and Mary within the context of Luke and within the context of its time. And then second, we're going to look at the passage in more detail. And I'd like to invite you to do that in groups for a while, and then we'll come back and then we'll compare notes with what maybe God has said to you or something that struck you for the first time. Um, I can hear music, can you? <laughs> oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> what I think is lovely is that we can actually find new things in the scriptures, but really the scriptures are given to us to be instrumental in our transformation. Um, you always need a health warning on this. You know, read this at your peril. You will not be the same again. Uh, and so the, the point of the discussion groups is for, for us to try and see in our own words what this might be about. And then, if it's appropriate, you, this could be a little time of prayer as well. So that um, I hope that all of us will be changed in a little way um, by the time we finish this evening. Are you up for that? Yeah. Grand. Well, let's begin. Um, I'll read it just to uh, bring it to mind, and then we'll start. So it's Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Uh, you may say, how can you spend an hour and a half looking at just is it five or six verses? Well, let's see. Jesus and his disciples were on their way. We know that that was on the way toward Jerusalem. And they came to a village, verse 38, where a woman named Martha opened her home to Jesus. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things. Actually, a few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what that is. And it will not be taken away from her. Like any good writing, it stops there and you think, so, what happened next? Well, let's begin at the beginning. Um, just for those, of, if, if somebody here for whom this is your first time, um, Lent, is a, as I think, is your time for your spiritual MOT, and a disciple is looking at discipleship. Um, do make sure you can sit so you can have a good view. I mean of the screen, not me. <laughs> um, and this is what we're doing. Uh, we're looking at Martha and Mary. What I think one of the great things about Scripture is that you may know it backwards, but God can still bring new things out of it. If God can speak through Balaam's ass, I mean... So, we're talking about Mary and we're talking about Martha. What associations have you already got with the name Martha? Now, I'm going to repeat them for the, for the sake of the recording because um, somebody said they really enjoy the listening, but then there's a... And they said, really? So, I'm going to... When you say something to me, I say it back for those... There's a house group using this tomorrow night. Uh, they use the PowerPoint and the recording and they, sit, they go through it all. So, great stuff. So to you in the house group, this is for you. <laughs> Martha, what, what do you associate with her? Just one word, if you like. Housework. Housework, thank you. Diligent, Diligent. yes. Hospitality, Hospitality. Hospitality. yes. Task-focused, Task yep. Food doesn't cook itself. Well, it doesn't in our house, anyway. <laughs> As Janet will tell you. Um, 
And Mary. What comes to mind when you think of Mary? Listening. Listening. Learning. Learning. Intrigue. Wanting to, yeah, wanting to know more. Yes. What do you notice when you look at those two people? Just contrast them with each other in, in, in the story there. They seem almost like opposites, don't they? So Martha... World focus, practical, busy bee, yes. One's a doer, one's a thinker. What do you notice about the thinker, Mary, in this story? <laughs> she doesn't do any work. Spot on, that's right. Yes, she's got this moment with Jesus in the house. So she's right there listening to Jesus. Well, the thing that struck me was Martha does all the busyness and then goes to Jesus and says, can you help? Mary doesn't say a thing. She not only doesn't do a thing, she doesn't say a thing. The real focus is in that contrast, as you're suggesting. But I'd like, as it were, before we say that I don't think they're quite two opposites. And I hope that by the end of this evening, you'll see that actually there's quite a lot of similarities between them. Um, but so, and the danger sometimes, if we say things are opposites, that we automatically say it's either or, when usually it's a spectrum of things overlap and complement. So if we just, let's wait and see if we can find something new in the way these two contrast. Well, let's begin with some pictures, because I think these pictures show you how some artists read this story and then painted it. And here, this is because it's early in the evening and you're all fresh, I'd like you to just look at the picture and tell me how it compares to the story we've just read. Because they read the same story we've read. Yeah? So let's begin with the first one in slide two. Tintoretto painted Christ in the house of Mary and Martha in 1528. Just have a look. Remember what we just read? And look at that. Anything strike you? They're both looking at Mary, indeed. Yeah, it looks as though Martha is, is chiding Mary. That's right. Mar Martha is actually not speaking to Jesus, she's speaking to Mary. I just wonder whether by then, 16th century, the idea of Martha, as it were, telling off Jesus yes. wouldn't have gone down well. So Tintoretto said, okay, so she has a go to, I mean, sorry, she shares with her sister <laughs> the need. All right, let's try the next one, side three. Okay, Velasquez painted a kitchen scene with Christ in the house of Martha and Mary. Well, what do you notice there? compared to the story. Well, somebody's certainly saying something to her. Yes. That's right. Jesus and Mary are in the far room. They're smaller, further away. And the attention of the, the people looking at the picture is, is straight at Martha and look at her. It's eloquent, isn't it? Really miserable. Yes, she's not preparing the food with love, as it were. No, she's really fed up, I think. All right. Try one more. Slide four. Now, this is uh, Vermeer who was a Dutch painter who specialised on painting little scenes in people's homes. So you probably see that from the, the, the picture. What strikes you there? 
think almost as if she's trying to get Jesus' attention, as if she's dancing around to get his attention. Yes, and Jesus is, so Martha's trying to get Jesus' attention, and Jesus is, is giving it, isn't he? He's look, that's right, he's looking at Martha and pointing to Mary to say almost yes. Yes. Martha's come with her food and her, this is Lord, here it is for you, but really, Lord, and Jesus is saying, now, look, look at your sister, really. What can, you, what can you glean from that? And then the last one is, is, is painted by an interesting Chinese Christian. Uh, in two, well, he published it in 2014. I don't really quite... Um, uh, painted it, and, it, and what he did, he's taken uh, modern Western art and Chinese palette of colours and wove them together to get this picture of the of the of that scene. Now, apart from the style, which is interesting, what do you sense is what what does the artist want us to think about this meeting? Yes, enough. Whoa. Okay, so Jesus is holding up his hand. Yes. Doesn't she? Well, they they both got so their heads are bowed, aren't they? But one in sort of adoration, and the other in just weariness. Do you see what he's added? Uh, <laughs> A teapot. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. Yes, do you see on the right? He's introduced the Holy Spirit. So Mary, who listens to the word of Jesus, that's the way to understand more about the Holy Spirit and, and, and experience more of the Holy Spirit, by listening to the word of Jesus. And that's that dove coming down. Well, I don't suppose any of us would paint it, but I, I expect all of us, if we could project onto that screen what we have in our imagination, each of us would have a slightly different picture of what this scene's about. Okay. Well, now, what I'd like to do is say that is normally how it works because when we read a text, the text is there and, and we read it, our mind takes what we read and constructs a picture for our imagination. And that picture comprises what you've read and all the things that have gone into your mind up till now, your experience of how to interpret things. So we all read slightly differently. And the thing to do when we read like that is to compare our readings with other people to make sure that we're not really wonky. Um, I used to teach New Testament and, and also some theology. And I was trying to help the students understand how we are all the time interpreting what we see and putting together what we think is a scenario. So I, I told them, I described a scene like this. You're looking up a road, and there's a crossroad, and a car races across. And a moment later, a police car with blue lights flashing races across. So what is happening? Okay. Assumption. The assumption, thank you, is that the, you were just, it's a police car, isn't it? Following a speeding car. But is it? The information you picked up from your eyes was just two events close together in time. The actual link, you don't know enough. So what I'm saying is every time we read the scriptures, we're doing this all the time. And to read well is the aim of the Christian. You, you can read the scriptures quickly and miss things, and also you can read it quickly and impose things. So I'm hoping this narrative reading we've been talking about will help in allowing the scriptures space 
room to breathe so we then can receive more clearly what they're about. So the plan for this evening then, uh, in slide six, is to look at two themes. The first is the place of Martha and Mary in Luke's Gospel, the place of women in the ministry of Jesus. And the second is to then to say what is going on for Martha and Mary in this, this exact uh, incident. So we do our literary homework and we do our cultural studies. We've done that and then we're going to break into groups and then we're going to come back together and share. And I, and I hope that, that by drawing those threads together we'll encourage one another. So, how do we read slide seven, the, the narrative? We remember that we stick with one gospel. We look at the structure. And then this evening, we're going to introduce a new way of doing narrative reading. A narrative takes the whole of the narrative and tries to put it together as a big view. Um, we're also going to look at themes and how themes are distributed amongst, amongst the, uh, the t along the text. And the theme we're looking at today is, is women in the ministry of Jesus. So, starting then with the narrative reading. Remember, the next slide shows the big picture. There we have, that's the Gospel of Luke on slide eight. Um, Mark, you just, uh, can you click it again until we got it all? That's it. And you should, I should by, by now you know that off by heart, don't you? Five bits. Um, the arrival of Jesus, the ministry in Galilee, the journey to Jerusalem, the passion narrative, and the resurrection. Now we're looking today at Martha and Mary, and that takes place not in Galilee, the things we've looked at before, but here on the journey to the beginning of the journey to Jerusalem. And that will help us when we're trying to interpret what's going on. And then, if we look more closely, uh, we'll see Galilee is the ministry up there. Farther away from Jerusalem, more relaxed, more liberal. Jerusalem, conservative, politically um, very sort of tight. So Jesus' ministry began there. And that first section of the gospel really was explaining what it meant to be a disciple and what the kingdom of God is about. Explaining in the sense of demonstrating as well as speaking. And now we've started to look at the, the journey to Jerusalem. And that's the long road down, as you can see it there. Jerusalem in Luke is quite important because, first of all, it's the way Jesus is going to get to heaven. In Luke, if you just turn to Luke 9.51, you'll see it. This is the beginning of this journey to Jerusalem bit. 9.51, just a bit earlier. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The way to heaven is through Jerusalem. And certainly for um, the first, uh, for, for Jesus, that, that is true. But Jerusalem also has two other important aspects for Luke. Jerusalem is where the disciples have to wait after Jesus has been raised and gone to heaven for the Holy Spirit to come. So Luke's gospel finishes in Luke 24, saying, wait until you have power from on high. So Jerusalem is the place where the Holy Spirit will come upon this new little community, the, the very young church. And finally, as you, you probably know that Luke and Acts were a, a two-volume work, the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1.8, um, Jesus is then saying that you will preach the gospel in Jerusalem first. You can also do it like the circles, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then the ends of the world. Jerusalem is where mission begins and radiates out. So Jerusalem is really significant. So this is the next stage in the development of the narrative. Now, the, the, the journey to Jerusalem, it's interesting for a journey that um, there are very few place names. Um, it, it is actually a collection of teaching and incidents which fit the increasingly serious disposition that Jesus faces and is. So we see here that the, the journey can be divided into three, loosely divided into three, uh, where we get little reminders in Luke 9, Luke 13, and Luke 17. And Luke 9 is where we're going to look uh, at uh, Martha. So if we go in a bit more closely to the next slide, slide 11, and again, we, we click that until it appears. 
So we've got Jesus setting out to Jerusalem. He's now talking about the cost of discipleship. Then Luke 10, people want to know. So he sends out the 72. An expert in the law comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Martha says, come home. And after that, Jesus starts to teach them about prayer because the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. You can sense things building, the interest building. And as the crowds get larger and larger in Luke 12, Jesus is having to explain, don't be fooled. Just because this popular movement doesn't mean that this is all really of God. For you, my friends, do not worry. Choose treasure in heaven. And finally, in 13, just the end of that first section, we get the um, Jesus ministry. So the theme we'd like to, I'd like to talk about for this first bit is the theme of women in the Lucan narrative. Now, I hope that doesn't sound too um, dry, um, because actually it's quite amazing. And I say that as a man, but I say that much more. Well, you'll see in a minute why. Um, how was it, what was it like to be a woman in first century Palestine? What was it like to be a pious woman, a prayerful woman, a woman who was looking for the coming of the kingdom, who wanted to grow as a disciple? Well, let's see if we can, as it were, get a bit closer. I would suggest that there are at least five features in Luke's Gospel which are deliberately put there to help us enter into this, the life-changing, the difference that Jesus made to women. Women are involved in many significant moments. Their actions mirror men. They appear in parables, as do men. They take daring initiatives, and they're often named in the narrative. So if we just go through those one at a time, just to explain. I don't know whether you've noticed, if you've had a chance to sit down and read Luke in one go, but there are women all over the place. They are. It's extraordinary. Written in a time when the women were tucked away from public life. But in the Gospel of Luke, you can't move without bumping into them metaphorically. And Luke is doing that because what Luke is doing, he's saying, I will tell this story so you will see a glimpse of what the future is going to be like. And they just figure large. So let's look at the women are mentioned many times. I will just race through them. You don't need to look them up because I think many of these will be familiar. At the beginning, Jesus' birth, Mary and Elizabeth have big roles to play. Clearly Mary would. Um, Later on, received by Jesus, a sinful woman uh, in Simon's house. In Luke 8, there's a group of women who travel with the disciples. We'll come back to them. In Luke 10, there's Mary and Martha. And then in Luke 7, there's the healing of a widow's son. Uh, There's the healing of a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years in Luke 8. In Luke 13, there's the healing of a woman who had a deformed spine. In Luke 21, Jesus says, if you want to know what giving is, look at that widow there. Look how little she gives. And actually, she's understood giving in a way that that rich Pharisee hasn't. When um, Jesus was going to um, the the cross and was going along the road, there were women commenting on his predicament, taking an interest. There were the women who went with the disciples to keep an eye on things. There were the women who came and followed and saw it was Joseph who took down Jesus' body and they worked out where the body lay. And it was women who went early on the first Sunday morning to see with myrrh and spices to anoint the body. And it was women who first were met by the angels and saying, don't you remember what he said in Galilee? Oh, yes, they said. And it was women who raced back and told the other disciples. And do you remember what the other disciples did? No, they didn't ignore them, but they did not believe them. Yeah. And it says, if you look, if you look at it, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, um, in, in Luke 24, Peter, however, thought, there's something here. And Peter went back to find out. And, that's, and on that way, he met, he met Jesus, or Jesus met him. So what we've got 
are women playing a full part in the ministry of Jesus, not only being healed and being taught, they're held up as examples, and interesting enough, some of them even traveled with him. Well, that's the first thing Luke does. He makes sure there's lots of uh, coverage of women in Jesus' ministry. The second thing, though, is even more interesting. Because Luke doesn't want to just say there are a lot of women disciples. He wants to say something more profound. He wants to say women and men are of equal stature in the kingdom of God. Now, how will I do that, he says to himself. Well, how would you do it if you wanted to get it across? Apart from just stating it. <laughs> well, he, he does a very clever literary trick. He says, every time something happens to a woman, uh, a man, I'll put alongside how something similar happened to a man. And so there are lots of pairs as you go through Luke's Gospel. Now, you don't need to look them up now, but I will just mention some, see if, if they ring a bell. And let me just see. The angel Gabriel appeared first to Zechariah. The angel Gabriel then appeared to Mary. So two people had visits, man and woman. Uh, Mary's response led to uh, a scripture which we now call the Magnificat. Zechariah's response led to a scripture we now call the Benedictus. Simeon praises God when the little baby Jesus is brought to the temple. And so does Anna. Uh, Jesus began his ministry in Luke chapter 4. Uh, remember, he's in the synagogue, and then he came out and he healed a man in the synagogue. And he went from there to Simon's house and he healed a woman. When there were arguments about um, uh, the parables, how, who would be, um, how they were collected together. In Luke 15, uh, the first parable is the parable of the man with a hundred sheep and he lost one and he went searching for it. And the second parable is the parable of what? A woman who lost a coin, and went searching for it. When you see this patterning, you may not even spot it, actually. You just read it. But when you see it, you think, Luke, you're trying to make a point here, aren't you? And, and, he's, and if he were here, he'd say, you're darn right I am. You've got to use everything you can to try and educate people because it's not what you expect. In the parables... Women are sometimes held up as role models that we should emulate. Jesus tells the story, um, the, persistent, the, persistent, the woman who searched persistently for her lost coin, the persistent widow who wouldn't give up and kept banging on the door. <laughs> Do you remember? That's what you need to be like, says Jesus. They won't like that woman. And then there are these, I think these two daring initiatives, these were just, just astonishing. Luke 8 just, if you can turn to it, just read it. It's, it's lovely, really. And it's only a verse or two. Verses 8, verses 1 to 3. Luke 8, 1 to 3. After this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. <coughs> Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, a fairly senior post. Um, Susanna, and many others. And these women were helping to support them out of their own means. These women had left their husbands, families, and homes and were travelling with Jesus and they were bankrolling it. Now, that is just astonishing. No rabbi would want to be holden to women. I mean, would you? Of course you wouldn't. And then Martha and Mary. Martha, well, she invites Jesus to her home. If you look at the beginning again of that passage we just read, that's back to Luke 10, verse 38. Jesus had decided on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And then a sister called Mary sat at the Lord's feet and, and this story unfolds. Do you know, there's no man there. 
There's just Martha, it's her home, and a sister. And they've invited this rabbi to come in and have a meal with them. Now that is pretty brave. But the amazing thing is that Jesus says, deal, you're on, I'm coming. Next week we'll, we'll see how he does it with Zacchaeus. Same, same principle. So here we've got Jesus having a meal with Martha and Mary, with no chaperone. No, it, it was just astonishing. And we remember right at the first one, if you, went, if you were there on the first, we talked about the woman who came in to the meal at the Pharisee's house and how she just was there at his feet, weeping, washing her, his feet with her tears and her hair. And then finally, what is interesting, in a narrative, when you want to draw attention to something, when you want to make a story live, you add a name. I don't mean you make up a name, you ensure that the person is named. They become more real, because you can say, oh, do you remember Peter? Not, do you remember that sort of man thing, or whoever it was? A lot of women are named. You heard it in Luke 8. And that means that they are fully-fledged characters within the narrative. They're not just um, people who have helped the story along. They are there in their own right. Uh, Plummer was a, a biblical scholar who wrote uh, one of the first great commentaries on Luke in the 19th century. Um, and he said, having worked through, he said, Luke is the gospel of womanhood. And I thought, yeah, that's it. And let me say, that was long before the sort of feminist uh, movements uh, and so on. And I think, if I can suggest this tactfully, I think we don't see how startling this is because in our wider culture, it's much more, there's been much more effort involved in getting equality for the sexes, for gender equality. Um, it's not, it doesn't strike us as odd, does it? You just think, of course. Well, you'd expect Jesus to do that, wouldn't you? And the answer is yes. But to do it in that climate, wow, it makes such a, a much more of a dramatic point. So what I'd like to suggest then is that we look at that climate to see if we can draw the contrast. And so we're going to look at uh, some cultural studies of that time. Now, um, the way we do this, if we can move to the next slide, uh, Mark, and you can see um, the Torah and the Talmud. Let me explain. The Torah was the Old Testament. It's pretty close to the Old Testament we use. Sometimes it's used just for the first five books, the literal books of the law. Sometimes it's used for, for all of them. But people needed help to have it explained, and so the rabbis would teach what it meant, and people would go on what the rabbis said rather than study it themselves. There weren't copies around. They didn't read, so you were, up to, you were at the mercy of the rabbis. And there were many rabbis, and they had schools, and they, some thought Jesus was a rabbi. Well, in the time of Jesus, it was all done on oral tradition. It used to be said a good scribe, a good teacher of the law, is like, a, don't misunderstand this, is like a well-plastered cistern. That means um, like a container for storing water, which doesn't lose a drop. It was done by memory, and, they, and, and people would learn and recite verses. Only 200 years later, when the Romans were so weary of the Palestinian uprising and trying to get themselves free, that they, they came and they smashed and they took stuff away, did the scribes realize that they weren't very careful, all this oral tradition would get lost. So they said, we must write it down. And so they wrote it down in, 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 a, in a volume called the Mishnah. You can just see it there. And that was written, and that was, that was the comments, all the rabbinic teaching um, that they assembled. And then, because there was more, they collected some more, and the 5th century they added a bit more, the Gemara, the, the rabbinic commentary on the rabbis, the commentary on the commentary. And that together is what we now know is the Talmud. I, I don't know if some of you know, have heard the expression. The Talmud is, and Jews today still refer to it. And the Talmud literally means the teachings. Um, uh, sorry, the Talmud, yeah. So what we've got here is we've got written versions of what was in oral form in Jesus' day. So we use this to look back 150 years. It was written 150 to 200 AD. And so it may not be precisely accurate, but it, that's our, uh, our viewpoint to take us back into those days. 
Well, it's a huge subject, and I'd only like to offer you four points from it. Um, uh, I found, actually, I was quite moved reading it, because I read both scholars um, who, who've expounded, as you would imagine, but also women who are trying to wrestle. These are Jews who love God and are trying to wrestle with this tradition because they don't know how it can be of God. And, and, and one woman describes how her copy of the Mishnah is just bathed in tears when she reads it. She can't believe the rabbis did this. But this was the climate of the day. So if we go to the next slide. The first thing they would say, man was born first, and then woman was created from man, so she's secondary and distinct. So there's Adam, first, Eve, second. Adam was created, and Eve was actually only a part of Adam. So Adam is the head, and Eve is a part of him and a subsidiary part, but distinct and different. Men and women will always be different and distinct, not just biologically, but in terms of stature, of status, of importance. I've heard it argued the other way around by feminists. They said, actually, they got it wrong because Adam was created first and then Eve was created second. So who was the last person created by God? Eve. And so where's the crown of creation, the last bit? Therefore, but you can follow that through if you like. Women's roles are different from men and they will always remain so. Second, the woman was seen to be uh, in charge of life at home and that was her calling um, and that was where they were supposed to be. One of the, uh, the Talmud, uh, the Baroque reads this, reads like this. Women earn merit by sending their children to synagogue and their husbands to study with the rabbis and waiting for their husbands to return. They are the house, the home, that's your place. Another uh, quote, it is the way of a woman to stay at home. It's the way of a man to go out into the marketplace. Within the family, that's where the woman should be and remain and exert her influence. Women in the public realm, well, they should have, they couldn't take part in leadership, they couldn't vote, um, they couldn't testify in court. Women were considered to be um, a distraction sexually, uh, but their appeal meant that rabbis insisted that women were really covered up. If they ventured out, they should be swathed like a mourner and isolated from the people. It was very confining. It's not dissimilar from some kinds of Islam we see uh, in the news today. Women and the religious, religious life. The fourth point. Women were granted a limited role. One rabbi taught, women should not be taught the Torah. Uh, indeed, many women were illiterate. But he said, the Talmud teaches most women simply do not have the mental capacity to learn. Well, they were never taught. They weren't given. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it, when you've got culture that works and thinks like that. Women have the power to sexually distract men, so when they do go to the synagogue, which they can, they shouldn't be seen by men, so they go to the synagogue and they, and they have a curtain that separates them, and they shouldn't speak. Because if a man's praying and he hears a woman's voice, his mind goes off the prayer. So she can be there and she can listen to the prayers, but she can't be seen and she can't speak. When you meet in the synagogue, you need ten people before you can start the prayers. Ten men. If you could be ten women there, you can't start. You have to wait for ten men. Uh, this conservative, constrained place for women was not always like it in the Old Testament. You may remember that the first temple, Solomon's temple, um, was the great temple, and that was eventually destroyed when the, uh, the people carried off to Babylon. That had no court for women. But the temple that they rebuilt in Jerusalem had a court for women to make sure that they were kept separate and kept in their place. And this conservative view of the role of women is still found in Judaism today. These rabbinic teachings were the aspirations of those who loved God and set the tone for those who were less, less pious. So now, think of what Jesus did compared to what the rabbis did. They, didn't, they kept away from women, they didn't touch them, they wouldn't allow them to touch him. When that woman 
came into Jesus's, having well, supper in the Pharisee's house and started bathing his feet. That was just outrageous. And Jesus allowed it to continue. He saw women in a completely different light. He models the life of the new kingdom. What I'd like to suggest is this, because this debate still rages in the church today. Uh, what, is the, what, are the, what are the roles of women in ministry and leadership, uh, ordination and so on? I think behind it all, there lies a fundamental decision. For some people, you are faithful to God by being faithful to the past when God revealed himself. For some people, you're faithful to God when you're faithful to the vision God has for the future. So either you create your discipleship by looking back or you look forward. And I think many of those who have this restricted role for women are actually looking back, back to the days of the New Testament sometimes, because in those days, that's as far as their understanding had reached. And those who have a vision for women being fully, uh, in, fully uh, participating in leadership are those who have the vision of the future, which is like Paul said. Do you remember? In Christ, there's neither male nor female. We're the same. Our equal status, fully belonging. That, I think, model works in lots of ways. It works ethically when you have to make decisions. Do you look to the vision of the future, the kingdom breaking in, or do you look to the carefulness of the past, which was interim and which preparatory? And it's, I think that's what Jesus was doing. He took the best of the past and he reminted it. He wasn't ever bound by it. Do you remember when he took the disciples and walked through a field on the Sabbath and started eating corn? Well, you shouldn't do that on the Sabbath because it's, it's harvesting. And so you can see the kind of literalism and the legalism meant well, but it actually wasn't life-giving. So if we draw it together, I would say, on the next slide, I'd sum it up like this. For Jesus, the contrast in the kingdom of God with the, the days of the first century Palestine are three. Jesus considered men and women to be of equivalent status. He treats each with the same respect. So there is real liberation. Second, Jesus sees women playing a full part in the new kingdom, which he was introducing. So they're fully included. And the third, if they're fully included and fully involved in ministry, women can teach the men as men can teach the women. Or maybe, if you put it another way around, men can learn from women as well as women learn from men. Now, that was really revolutionary then, and it's taken centuries. And I, I, my view is we're not out of it yet, because I find there are still, in British culture, uh, there are two things that I would think. There's, there's a kind of a racism there that's below the surface, which we're socialised into, we don't realise it's there, until we meet somebody who talks about what it's like to move in here from a different ethnic group. And there's also a, sort of a gender stereotyping. Men are still men, and women are women. You know, the sort of thing? We haven't really fully entered into this new, inclusive, complementary um, community that Jesus wants us to, to build and be. <sighs> Worry. Aren't you glad there's no quiz? But isn't it great? Because this leads us into our second part, looking at Martha and Mary. Because what it means is you can't say... Ah, oh, but David, they're just women, you know. Women do that. You know, they get head up about the cooking or they, they want to sit there daydreaming or meditating or something. You can't do that. I remember, I, I, do you remember I said in one of my earlier talks that I was the rector of Middleton and the men would come to the PCC and the women would come to the Bible study. I thought, dearie me. And so I introduced Bible study to the PCC and it didn't go down well. <laughs> We've come here to take you about, talk about the lawnmower. Have you really? So the question now is, Martha and Mary, what can we learn from them? Well, I'd like to invite you to do what we've done before, is to read the story again in a group, just create a group in just a moment, and then become Martha and go through what she was thinking and feeling as she went through all of that. Then become Mary, and what was she thinking and feeling? And finally, 
put yourself in Jesus' shoes. And what, how did he respond? And what do we learn from his response? And when we've done that, you might want to pray, or you may not, that's all right. Um, I'll give you a, 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 a five minutes and then a two-minute warning, and then we can come back together and, and we can share what has struck us from this. Because I think Ma- Martha and Mary have a great deal to say to people who live in busy, activist cultures. And therefore who think the best way... Oh, no, I'm telling you, no, I shouldn't say this yet. <laughs> the best way to be a Christian is to be as busy as you can for God. You know, I, I, I don't jest when some people seem to think that the greatest privilege you can offer a new person who walks to the door is give them a job. Pardon? Why have you come to church? I'm looking for a job. Oh, wonderful. But we'll come to that. So, is that okay? Now, any comments before we... or questions before we move to the groups? The New Testament is a really radical, revolutionary document. Hey, yes. Why, why, because it is a radical, revolutionary document, why has it taken us so long to engage with these underlying questions? Um, well, I th- three things come to mind. There's, an, there's a season and an economy in, in God's providence which we just have to respect and not understand. So uh, uh, part of me says, I don't know. But two things do, I think, point a bit to that. The first is, as I said at the beginning, we can read the New Testament with our own cultural spectacles on, and that almost, as it were, makes us blind to some of the stuff there. We haven't read very well. And I have to say, this idea of the lectionary where you read you know, 12 verses or something, or if you go to some churches, um, in the Anglican Church, you would have um, an Old Testament reading, a psalm, an epistle, and a gospel. Now, that, to me, is about sort of six months thinking. And you get it all dropped on you, and you walk out, and, and then you have to have an eight-minute homily, because in that church, there's no time for it anymore. You've got to be out in an hour. So I don't think we've allowed the text to speak to us, really. We need to read well, open, open ourselves to it. And the second thing, I suppose, is I think we don't realise how culturally shaped we are. And I think we've become more attuned to that with um, the international nature of the church. I mean, one of the great things about having Christians from different parts of the world uh, is that they, they ask innocent questions and they're really pointed I can tell you, in Birmingham, I was the mission, canon missioner at the cathedral. And we invited over some young people from Malawi, which is our link. And they came and they spent three weeks in the diocese staying with Christians. Uh, and then they came to a big farewell service before they went back. And I was interviewing them. And I said, tell us a bit about what you've made of coming here. And they said, well, they said, your churches are wonderful. They're really ever so well built, most of ours are just sort of mud and corrugated iron. Yes, I said, and they're older than ours, much older. They're very, very impressive. I said, yes. What else? And they said, I'm not sure we could say. I said, go on, this is family. Well, they said, we've got two questions. And remember, they've been staying with Christians in and around the Diocese of Birmingham, not Litchfield, of course. They said, the first thing is, why are you, all you Christians, so miserable? (laughs) And I thought, are we miserable? And then I remembered the way some of them sing and dance about their faith. And we, well, we move a little bit, don't we? But not too much. We don't move for too long. It could be tiring, you understand. Um, I said, well, good question. And you could see people going, ooh. And the second thing they said is, why don't you talk about Jesus? And we say, but how do we? They said, we've stayed in Christian families. And when we begin a meal, they don't pray, saying, thank you, Lord, for the gift of food. They just say, ready? We'd like the gravy. And at the end of the day, they said, we'd like a cup of cocoa or a hot water bottle. They don't say, now let's just pray together to the Lord to end the day and thank him. And if you go to these, some of these, these are only third generation 
churches. They really knew. They don't know how to do it properly. That's the great thing. If you go to them uh, out in the, in, the, in the village in the bush, the minute you go in, they sit you down, and they don't say, would you like a cup of tea? They say, sit, and it comes. You don't ask. And if you don't drink it, they're offended. So to, uh, and then they pray, and if you listen to their prayers... The prayer of a, of a, of a Christian in a, an African village where it's all very, the life is very fragile. They say, Lord, thank you for keeping us up until this day. We know it is you who have done it. And when do we pray like that? If we run out of food, we go down to Sainsbury's, don't we? Or Morrison or wherever it is. And they have nowhere to go. They've got to somehow improvise. So... These young people were asking simple questions, but they were profound. Why is he so miserable? And why don't you talk about Jesus? There was a, there was a, I'm going to stop, but there was a, there was a, a bishop who came. He was, he was a great lad. He was a bit of a wag, really, but he was a good man. And he came to a, a, a factory in Wolverhampton because he was interested in industrial mission. And he was going around on the shop floor, and they, they made transformers. And they, these transformers were shipped out to Uganda around the Owen Falls uh, hydroelectric scheme. So he went around and said, thank you for the transformers you built for us in, in, in uh, Uganda. And all of them saying, oh, thank you. And he had these lovely smile, you know, like some of these Africans, dark face, lovely smile. You think, oh, you just feel lifted by being in their company. So he said, thank you ever so much. He said, oh, right, very good. Then he, so then he met the former, then he met the department heads, and then finally he met the managing director. And he's being shown round by an industrial chaplain, a Church of England industrial chaplain. So they went up there, and, and the guy said the same. I'd like to say, we're really grateful for all the stuff you've built and shipped out because it's doing great things. We've got power in our neck of the woods. And, and the man said, we're delighted and very happy to hear that. He said, now I must go. He said, shall I pray for you? And the industrial chaplain leaned over and whispered, we don't do that here. <laughs> and he turned around, he said, pardon, he said. I pray with everybody at home. He said, we have Muslim ministers in our government. I say, shall I pray for them? They say, Bishop, you pray. I go into the shops and I say, will you pray? You pay. And the manager said, Bishop, you pray. <laughs> <laughs> our culture has tied us down, has tamed us has made us, a friend of mine said, was it wishy-washy? Well, anyway, what can Martha and Mary say to us? So, you'll need this sheet. Um, on the inside, on the right-hand side, there you've got your um, suggested things. Don't feel bound by it. Just use that to, to suggest. But what we're wanting is that the Lord will make those, that story come alive in a fresh way tonight. Okay. Thank you for listening so far. Would you like to choose a spot somewhere near? And um, The beta groups, would you like to respect your leaders and follow them wherever they are? <laughs> and then I'll give you a shout in a bit. Right, welcome back. So thank you very much. And for those on the tape, people have just reassembled and we're going to see what wisdom has emerged. Oh, there's optimism. No, sorry, we're going to see what has happened. So you were invited to imagine yourself as the three characters and as you went through the story, uh, what struck you? Um, could I ask the question this way? Is there anybody here who found there was something new that struck them and they, they would be brave enough just to say in just a word or two what it is and then I'll repeat it for the, for the recording. Okay, so the, the thought that actually the one thing that was necessary was, uh, and Mary demonstrated it, uh, and certainly the text suggests that, because she sat at Jesus' feet and that's where disciples sat, when rabbis sat down, and they sat there to listen and learn. So she took the posture of a disciple. Uh, and a disciple is when you give yourself to somebody else to follow them and become like them. So, yeah. So thank you. So the, the one thing that was needed was actually the self-giving that Mary demonstrated. She was saying, Lord, I want to follow you, I suppose. Yeah? 
Thank you. Any other thoughts that were new and fresh? Yes. Yes, I think the um, the Martha is in the in, in the original Greek. It's evocative, which means it's you're speaking personally, one to one, and you say, and you can, and it is. It's Martha, Martha. It is exactly that. Jesus understands, but he he's going to correct her, um, but he does it because he he cares for her. Yeah. So Martha's life is crowded with many things. Instead of slowing down and listening to God like Mary, she's getting the meal ready for Jesus. Now, I mean, you would, wouldn't you? I mean, if Jesus came to say, and you said, come to supper, and he comes, well, you'd have to rush around and get the supper ready, wouldn't you? And say so you'd be busy in the kitchen, and while somebody else, the sister in this case, is actually just listening and learning. So the thing that strikes me is that what Martha was doing was necessary if you're going to offer hospitality. So you can see why she was doing it. Um, did, did anybody get round to look at that question about uh, do you think Martha was a disciple or not? What clues are there in the story? Now that was Mary. Mary's, yes. Yes. Yep. So Mary is a full disciple, like other disciples are disciples. And my question was about Martha. Do you think she was a disciple? Yeah. And what leads you to think that? Uh, that's right. She, first of all, she actually invited him in, didn't she? She wanted to know. A disciple says, I want, Lord, I want to spend time with you. Will you show me things, teach me things, explain things, please? And if you look, if you just go back to, uh, if you've got your Bible open, you may have packed it away, but if you have, um, Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he's about to go. These, these kind of outriders, these disciples went to see where Jesus was going to say he's coming. Jesus is coming. And verse 5, when you enter someone's house, say peace to the house. If someone promotes peace, your peace will rest on them. Um, stay there, eating and drinking, whatever they give you. Jesus is doing exactly what those disciples did. They've come. They said, Jesus is on the way. And they said, come, come and have a meal with us. Tell us more. And now what we find is that Jesus, they've gone on to say Jesus is on his way. This is Jesus coming. He's now doing what they said he would do. He's going around the villages. So Martha, I suspect, knew he was going to be coming to her village. And I wouldn't be at all surprised that she thought, I, I must make a point of spending time with him. So I, she went out of her way to invite him. Yes. There are a couple of other things that also point to her being a disciple. Look at the way she describes Jesus. What, what word does she use? Lord. Lord. What word does she not use? Master. Rabbi or master or sir. <laughs> Lord. And that's the word disciples use of the Lord. And those that you move, you saw it in me last time with Peter. He started with master. Then he said, go, go away from me, Lord. Because he realized that he bit off more than he could chew at that stage. So the third thing that points to her being a disciple is that the, in, the, in the Greek, it actually uses the word diakonia, which is the word for service, for which we get the word deacon. And it's the word that was used to describe the people in Acts when they chose those people to wait at table. And do you remember they, who they, what kind of people they chose to be waiters? That's right. Faithful people, full of the Holy Spirit, were then made into deacons. They were recognized as deacons. And that's what Martha's doing. She's deaconing. So that's another pointer. So I, I think together, I would say that Martha and Mary actually thought the same. But Martha got trapped by having to prepare this wretched supper. <laughs> um, anyway, so there she is. 
she responds, however right it might have been to provide the meal, yep. she was driven to do it. It wasn't a choice. She didn't want to do it. Oh, that's interesting. I, th I, th I think she would have understood hospitality. Welcoming Jesus into the house would have been a meal. Yeah. So there's a play on words too in, in the Greek because the Greek there is portion. And they, they could be, Jesus is almost saying, no, I don't need many portions, many courses, just a few. In fact, just one. So just a, a supper with one course. And then you realize he's playing with a metaphor. And Mary has spotted it. Oh, that's, the, that's because Jesus is really saying, I will feed you if you listen. Isn't, isn't that what you want? And, and Martha would have said, yes, Lord, it is. So why are you preparing an eight-course dinner? Well, okay, there's a bigger discussion about how John and Luke use the same material or different, similar material. So um, I think... For me, the, the, the same thing is going on in both those. And I just wonder whether Martha is actually, uh, she, she is someone who speaks to us in our age. Um, I don't know about you, uh, but I've been a vicar uh, and a canon and an archdeacon. Uh, so I've done all this kind of you know, full-time Christian stuff for years now. And I still find it's a battle to find time and space to read and pray in the morning and listen to what the Lord might say. And I find, I'm astonished. I, theoretically, I'm even paid, well, I'm not now, I'm pensioned to do it, but anyway. Um, it, it, there's something about our culture in the West and in the church, maybe, that I think we be, I can see Martha in me. And I find Mary is hiding, and I have to make space for her, otherwise she'll get swamped by the busyness. You know? Well, anything else that's just... Uh, we're coming just up to time. We're, we're, we're just on time. Um, anything else that just struck you? Ta-da! Yeah. yeah. It's very easy to be busy in church things, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And we are the very people who know you can listen, and the Lord speaks from time to time. I'm, I'm hoping we're going to explore how the Lord speaks a bit more when we look at Cleopas in a bit. But I, do you know, so I, I've travelled around a fair bit and I've visited a lot of churches and I've spoken to that to how many PCCs. And when I ask them about what is your vision for the future, I try and actually couch it as what is the vision for the future. It's not many churches which say, we think the Lord is asking us to do this. Instead, we say, well, we, you know, it's probably a good idea to, or uh, I think it's necessary, or, well, we're, you know, practically we've got to the stage where we should... And I listen, and it's almost as if we, we do what I caricatured in that prayer last week. Um, we are the Lord's people, and we're really grateful for all that he's done for us. Uh, and now, Lord, just let us get on with it, would you? The great testimony for people outside church is not that you know how to play the organ or be a church warden. The great testimony is that you have got a new relationship which makes a difference each day. And it makes a difference not because you are happier. I remember being, um, a description of a school where um, I met this history teacher and she said, I'm a Marxist. I said, oh, really? And I slip a bit in every history lesson. She said, oh, do you? I said, and she said, and there's a guy over there and he, he's a Christian. She said, and you can tell he walks around, his head's held up, and all the rest of the day around like that. And I said, yes, isn't that lovely? It makes a difference. And I think, how do you nourish a friendship? By giving time to it. So how do you nourish your relationship with Jesus? By giving time to it. And I don't think there's a shortcut. There's no number, you know, these books will give you 27 steps to holiness by next week. I mean, what are we offering the world? Only what we've been given. And if we're too busy to receive it, we ain't got much to give. And that, I think, is why a lot of the young people think, you must be joking. What do I want to be involved with that lot? I mean, there's more excitement on the golf course than... It, well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> okay, one last contribution, then uh, we'll have the last slide, and I'll pray. Anything else? Is that okay? Well, so, so Mark, if we just move to the last slide. These are the things that struck me. 
Um, the importance of our invitation. Um, I don't think it's Jesus who's reluctant to speak. It is we who don't get quite get round to it to invite him uh, to speak to us. We need to create the space and the opportunity. And the second, the first priority, is us to listen. Um, it wouldn't have been great if on Sundays we had a chance for people to say, I'm not saying this in any particular way, I'm just thinking off the top of this, where people would say, I think the Lord has said something to me this week, and it was this. And we could all say, do you know, I think that might be, or perhaps it isn't, or let's explore it a bit more. That receiving from the Lord and talking about naturally will make it more natural and, not, and less odd. And discipleship is our response to what Jesus says to us. I think there are two ways of reading Martha. One is she's fed up that she's doing all the cooking. But I think she's really fed up because she's not at Jesus' feet herself. That's where she wanted to be. And I think we have a choice in that balancing of our lives. Can we give Martha more room at Jesus' feet? Become a bit more like Mary. Well, thank you for staying. Should we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you for such a gospel, something that is really good news. And thank you for the little bit we've begun to taste and see that the Lord is good. And thank you for over the years when we've seen you at work. And Lord, we pray that you will renew us and refresh us as we move forward with you. Increase our openness to you and our sensitivity to you, Lord. And help us to be more daring like some of those women were. We pray this so that you may have the preeminence and your people may be seen to be salt and light and leaven and joy and hope in the community. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you very much.